had someone to love me, someone to call me their own. Oh, I wish I had someone to live with, cause I'm tired of living Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And if you're, if you're just joining us, we are currently in deep into Theodore Dreiser's novel uh, from the 1920s. Uh, one of the few novels he wrote in that year, it might have been that in that decade, it might have been the only one. Prior to this, he hadn't written, published a novel in, in almost 10 years. That, that's a testament to how long it took him to write this particular novel. And that novel is none other than An American Tragedy. Um, probably his, his masterpiece. It may not be his most well-known work. Uh, perhaps more people have come across Sister Carrie, just because it's a little bit shorter maybe, or they come up and they were in high school or something. But An American Tragedy is, a, is a, just a much bolder novel. And it's based on the real... Uh, 1906 criminal case of a young man who killed a pregnant lover, essentially a former lover, by hitting her over the head and dumping her into a lake and then uh, trying to escape. And then it, beca- it became really a national sensation, the case. It, it really beca- it's, it became a case about uh, kind of uh, class and because the perpetrator was if not upper class. He was like a he was like a supervisor, right, at a factory. And the young girl was a young working girl, so it was about class. It was also about sexual sexuality and sexual hypocrisy. Of course, there was a an, a, a a pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy, in the middle of that case too. Now Dreiser pulls a lot of this right from life. Uh, he fictionalizes a few key points, and we talked about that last time, especially the murder itself in the novel is much more presented as uh, accidental. Our, our main character here, Clyde Griffiths, seemed to have second thoughts at the last moment, and then the death was at least partially accidental, though he did not do anything to save the woman and just kind of saw her doomed to fate in those last moments. But nevertheless, there's a lot of similarities in the background of, of our protagonist and the situation that led to that, and then the media sensation surrounding the, the trial. And really the third part, or the third book I want to say of An American Tragedy, it's written in three books. The first book covers his early life in Kansas City. The second part, the romance between Roberta Alden and Clyde Griffiths leading up to her death. And then the third part is about the trial and the national sensation surrounding the trial. And, and you know, and this part is really drawn from the, the real events. Um, so just as in real life, the trial of and the, the investigation and arrest and trial of Clyde Griffiths becomes a, a national sensation. And to some degree, he gets, he's being charged with a sense of the crimes of the era. I guess that's one way of looking at this, this trial, right? I think a lot of national sensational trials, right? You know, we have one every generation. They become symbolic of the era in a certain way and the crimes of the era. And they're a time for us to reflect on the negative aspects of our society and our civilization and, and kind of purge certain demons. I suppose now we have 
the Cosby trial and the Harvey Weinstein trial, and that's all tied up to the Me Too movement. Um, certainly in the 90s, it, it may have been like the the Rodney King verdict became that. And then, of course, you had the O.J. Simpson. Uh, O.J. Simpson, like a reflection on our celebrity culture, I'm sure. Uh, and, you know, kind of the, the good celebrity, the, the, the heroic person on the field becomes a murderer, right? So our heroes are not who we thought they were. And it does, that, that trial did a lot to kind of tarnish that celebrity culture and, and transform it. You know, in each generation, of course, in the 20s, you also had the the Scopes Monkey Trial, and that got literary representations as well, such as Inherit the Wind. So this becomes a way then to expunge and evaluate the demons of the era. And and for here, there's going to be class, class conflict, and that's what the trial ends up doing. It ends up presenting Clyde Griffiths as a, as a rich, young man seducing a working class girl, abandoning her, and then when she refused to go down quietly and forced him to confront the fact that he's a father to her child, he kills her and brutally and without remorse. That's how he gets presented. So it's very much about class, but it's also about, I think, the sexual hypocrisies of of the era. And that's something that Dreiser points out several times, right? And I think it's very important that Clyde Griffith's sister was seduced, impregnated, and abandoned earlier in the novel. And he's doing the same thing to someone else, but he's going to die for it. And this man who seduced his sister got away with it. So it's what Clyde Griffiths d- does here, I mean, maybe not the murder, but maybe murderous thoughts, of course, and this effort to try to get out of this unwanted pregnancy by any means, uh, that is, that's a broader crime, right? And then one person gets scapegoated for it. Well, not, not unjustly, right? I'm not saying that's it was unjust in the, in, no, in the novel or in the real life cases it's based on, but still, you get the sense that there's a scapegoating going on. And that is a, and I think that's much of what Dreiser's getting at in book three of, of An American Tragedy. Now for these last three episodes where we're going to cover the trial, essentially this part's going to be more about him in jail. He gets arrested. Clyde Griffiths gets arrested after a very brief investigation that pointed him out right away. I talked about how quick and easy the investigation was despite all of his, his careful planning. Uh, it shows how inadequate his, he is as a murderer. He gets caught very quickly in this part of this hundred pages, which covers chapters, I I think like six or seven to chapter 18 of book three. Um, Then in the next episode, it will really be about the trial. And we get basically two long descriptions of the cases, the prosecution's case and then the defense's case and then the cross-examination in which Clyde Griffiths, after testifying, it basically perjures himself and exposes through contradictory testimony that, you know, he's been lying and that that basically dooms him. And then the final part, the final episode will be about his time in, in death row. I might have a little bit more to say about that, but the trial itself is pretty straightforward. I, I just think it's, it's so well described. And I think this whole section with the political machinations behind the court case are really fascinating. I think the description of the courtroom scenes are very true to life and they feel right and they also feel like literary and dramatic and we know how popular this kind of fiction is now on tv of course law and order has been around for many many years kind of exploiting this fascination with the courtroom dynamic and you have that here and i I don't know of other writers who did this before i'm sure there were sensational fiction and 
accounts of that. But, you know, I, I have a hunch that we should give Dreiser some credit for maybe starting a couple iconic scenes here, like the the, the dramatic cross, uh, cross-examination in which the murderer exposes himself or the the pathos of the death row, right? If, if you read like Stephen King novels, especially like the Green Mile, you get this deep pathos of, of the of the death row and and here you get that same kind of scenes in fact at times i I felt i was like almost in a stephen king scene like from from the green mile i'll talk about that in the final episode so i think there's a lot of great stuff in here um but the themes of the novel i think by this point are are quite clear And and i think the heart of book three is someone a young man rightly or wrongly mostly rightly i suppose i mean just because a lot of people get away with their murder doesn't mean that people get caught and get punished for it are are being punished unjustly. Um, I I will say though I do think Dreiser. It's hard to come away from this novel and not come to the conclusion that Dreiser is anti-death penalty, um, or at least highly suspicious of the death penalty. I don't think he's at any point saying this character is on is being wrongly convicted. I, I think he is saying though that he's being charged with the crimes of the era. And, and I think that's the heart, the, the main point. And that, I think, is something he's forcing us to confront and, and, and ponder. So anyways, um, what happens in this part? And like I said, it's like, it's, it's about 11, 12 chapters of the book. Um, essentially, it's about um, where we left, left off the district attorney, uh, Mason, had pretty much identified Clyde Griffiths as the murderer. He had a search warrant for his apartment, searched through it, and found all these records, all these letters from Roberta. That pretty much gives the whole story away, right? That she was pregnant, that she was threatening to expose him, that, you know, their motive was there. They've they've already identified that it was probably him at the site. So then it's just a matter of, of finding him, and and they find him very quickly. Uh, so, you know, in the woods, when he was out with these other, these rich friends, remember Clyde Griffiths is trying to move up in society. He's trying to become a member of the elite. And he's got this girlfriend, this new girlfriend, Sondra Fitchley, who's kind of going to be his gateway into elite society. And he's with those friends, right? And that helps make him look even worse, right? He abandons this girl and he immediately goes to these other people. And it's, it's out there that he gets, he gets caught by the police. So it's a very quick turnaround. He doesn't really have, there's not a long, prolonged manhunt, right? Now, maybe, you know, what we're used to in kind of crime fiction is the long manhunt or the dramatic manhunt. This isn't that at all. It's, it's very banal. It's very matter of fact. Basically the, he gets identified, you know, and the policeman says, you know, I'm going to have to arrest you now. And Clyde Griffith basically goes, he confesses his innocence, um, but he he gets he gets dragged away, and it's a pretty standard run of the mill arrest. Um, very true to life. And then we have a series of questionings, and these questionings get Clyde gives contradictory testimony. At first, he denies being there. He denies everything. He, and this is his plan, right? Just you know, I I, you know, I didn't put my name on the. He he used a different name, right? And so he thought he could get away with this. No one saw him do it. No one saw him there. So he he thought he had a pretty easy. He, if he just denied it, right, they couldn't really pin it down on him. But the police very expertly and Mason very expertly is able to talk around him, and eventually get him to confess that he was there. And then Clyde changes his story to the one essentially what we saw when we observed the scene and that it was an accidental 
thing. He changes it, though. And what we see when we witness the murder as readers is Roberta's hit on the head. She falls in the water and Griffith debates in his head, like, do I let her die? Do I try to save her? Right. If I let her die, my problem solved. And I didn't really do it. I'm morally blameless. By the time he kind of works out in his mind, she's gone and she's her head's blown water and he can't save her. He changes it that there's like wind and the book gets blown away and it's rickety and he can't really save her. So he says it's an accident. He tr- wanted to save her, but couldn't. That becomes what he, he says. Nevertheless, he gets he gets dragged off to jail and and it very quickly becomes a uh, you know, a media sensation. So the media becomes part of the story, especially in the in the later half, where we start to get these news reports and uh, about the murder, and it's all sensationalist. It's all trying to see this as a, a dastardly murder by uh, a young seducer who violated the innocence of of a young woman, murdered her when she was she got pregnant and was in most in need. And, and that becomes a story that's in the public mind. And at this point, Clyde Griffiths is, is essentially doomed, right? And we know enough about these kind of public scandalous trials, how easy it is to sway public opinion one way or another on, you know, how the media can do that and how hard it can be to have like an objective trial in a media environment. There's really only one hiccup in the prosecution's case, and that comes with the, the, the autopsy, which does seem to show that that Roberta was alive when she when she hit the water and that she drowned, uh, which seems to confirm some of Clyde's story. If she was dead, hit on the head in the disruption of the water, that the autopsy would have shown that, and then that would have been an easy case to show, well, he just straight up murdered her. The autopsy does show that she drowned, so then that just opened up that defense, and it gives that space for, for the defense. But Dreiser really wants to hit home, and this is the beginning of chapter 12, so I'm kind of jumping ahead pretty quickly, but in the beginning of chapter 12, we get like the media presentation of this case, uh, what's been worked up in the newspapers. Quote, and then out of the Northwoods, a crime sensation of the first magnitude with all those intriguingly colorful and yet morally and spiritually atrocious elements, love, romance, wealth, poverty, death. And at the once picturesque accounts of when and how Clyde had lived in Lycurgis, with whom he had been contacted, how he had managed to conceal his relationship with one girl while obviously planning to elope with another, being wired for and published by the type of editor so quick to sense the national news value of crimes such as these, and telegrams of inquiries pouring in from New York, Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and other large American cities east and west, either to Mason Direct or to the representatives of the Associated or United Press in the area asking for further and more complete details of the crime. Who was this beautiful, wealthy girl with whom it was said this Griffith was in love? Where did she live? Where was Clyde's exact relationship with her? Yet Mason, overawed with the wealth of the Finchleys and the Griffiths, loath to part with Sandra's name, simply asserting for the present that she was the daughter of a very wealthy manufacturer like Curtis, whose name he did not care to furnish, yet not hesitating to show the bundle of letters carefully tied with a ribbon by Clyde, end quote. Now, that's a, that end point's a little interesting because the DA, he is trying to use Clyde for political purposes. He's trying to become a judge and get elected a judge. So he sees an advantage here. And he sees an advantage in targeting an, a member of the elite, Clyde Griffiths, right? And making him appear to be a, you know, a wealthy, you know, socialite mur- murderer, right? 
preying on on working class girls. At the same time, though, he he's political enough to know he doesn't want to drag the Finchleys and other important family into it. He doesn't want to offend all the rich people of upstate New York, and so he agrees to keep Sandra Finchley out of it. So throughout the trial, she'll just be called like Woman Z or something, and. And yeah, never strictly identified. I think the news reports are that she's a wealthy girl, but there's no ever identifying her, and that's a favor to that family. So that's another hypocrisy, right? Like her role in this is—I mean, she's not really responsible for too much, but her role she she's immunized from from the scandal, unlike the Griffiths, who are dragged through the dragged through the mud in, during this case. Now, one thing that makes the media, taints the media environment even more is that Roberta's letters get published in the newspaper. So everyone is reading them. And, and of course, this is why Dreiser has these letters is they did become publicized. And I think you can actually go get a book. You can get like the, what was the real guy's name again? It had the same initials. Oh yeah, it was Chester Gillette. Chester Gillette and the the girl's name was Grace Brown. So the girl had a had an entirely different name, but he kept the same initials for the actual the the murderer. So it was Chester Gillette. Um, and you can actually get his prison letters uh, with his mother and other people, and you can actually I think get these letters of of Grace Brown. So this stuff Dreiser was able to just pull from the public record and just adapt a little bit for for his literary purposes. But that was all out there. So everyone was reading the pathos and the emotion and the, the terror that, that this girl was feeling, uh, Roberto Alden was feeling. And so they obviously, you know, saw Clyde Griffiths as a, as a villain very, very quickly. Now, as for his defense, uh, obviously the Griffiths have to deal with this because he was an employee and he's got the same family name. And uh, Clyde Griffiths himself doesn't have any money for a defense. So the Griffiths do stand up and debate what to do about this. They don't really care that much about Clyde, I think, especially Gilbert Griffiths. You know, he was kind of like, I told you so. This guy was trouble. Uh, the older Griffiths, Samuel Griffiths, does want to offer up a defense. So they get him in, they get him defense counsel. Uh, now, they're not willing to continue with like appeals later on after the conviction. But they are willing to offer up a defense, at least at the trial stage, in part to protect their name and their and their reputation as much as to protect Clyde himself. Now, the, the defense is going to be pursued by two people. Um, Belknap, they're, they're like partners, Belknap and, and Jepson. And Belknap is, they both, you know, you got to kind of read carefully to see the different roles they play in the trial. Um, they're both... It's, it's suggested that Jepson is a little bit more clever and, and subtle and a little bit more good on the law, and Belknap is a little bit more dramatic, and you know he's the kind of guy who would jump up and say, objection, during the trial. Jepson was more the brains of it. Uh, but they do, they do play off each other kind of well and interestingly. And it's an interesting team. They have their own motivations for doing it as well. They, they have their own kind of political uh, ambitions that uh, they're opposing the party of of Mason so that's part they you know they see this as a way of getting of hurting Mason and therefore hurting the whole I think it's the Republican Party uh, that Mason is is working for or he's in right that's his political affiliation so once it's clear there's an indictment coming down and he's going to be tried the defense has to come up with a plan and, and there's a essentially a handful of, of, of strategies they can have one is that Griffiths was overcome with temporary insanity at some point. Um, 
what's it called? The brainstorm, a temporary aberration due to love and the illusion of grandeur aroused by Clyde in Clyde by Sandra Finchley and the threatened disruption by Roberto of all his dreams and plans. But they decide that's, that's going to be too, that they can't quite pull that off. And they think their chances of victory there aren't as great as if they make a straight up defense that he's just not guilty because he, you know, he didn't want to kill her. Or if he did, he changed his mind by the time he got there, and that was all an accident. And he tried; he wanted to save her life, but couldn't. So, kind of the story that Clyde gives to the police is what they stick with, essentially, for the defense. So, there's a couple elements to this. One is that he's a moral coward, right? And this is something the defense is going to insist on. He's not a murderer. He's not malevolent and vile. He's just a coward, right? And he made bad decisions. So they have to face the fact that. He was wrong to try to abandon Roberta and try to get an abortion and not marry her, right? So that was moral cowardice. And then he's like a victim of circumstance. It's all circumstantial evidence. And this is something even the prosecution essentially has to admit that is all circumstantial. But enough circumstantial evidence makes a pretty compelling case, right? But he says he was just unlucky victim of circumstance and that he would have saved her life if he could, right? Now, there's a lot of flaws in this. One, he's a strong swimmer, apparently. He's... You know, the there's the motive is there and things like that. So it's it's not a perfect defense, but they think it's the best defense they can level. And Belknap and Jepson, at least openly to Clyde, say, I think we have a good chance of winning this. But they see it as a game. They see it as politics. They don't really seem that invested in Clyde's well-being. They, they don't necessarily even believe him. It's not something that matters to them. And there's, I think Dreiser's, very good at exposing the nature of of the law, right? How law becomes extension of politics, and law is really a game played by lawyers. You know, real lives are in the, are are in the balance, but it, at the end of the day, it's about winning for these two for these lawyers. Now we do get a nice little scene at the end of this section that I'm reading for for this episode. Um, which in the Library of America version takes us to page 722. It's a nice little section where we, we see Mrs. Griffith get the news about Clyde and she gets it all through the newspaper and she gets the indictment. She gets the whole story and she doesn't want to believe Clyde did this. She wants, you know, she believes the best of her son and, you know, she's eventually she's going to play a bigger role in her son's life during the trial and after the trial in particular after the conviction where she comes and spends a lot of time in upstate New York and trying to build a defense for him and get money for an appeal. She plays a bigger role in his life towards towards the end. And I, I think Dreiser here is is actually making a point about parenting too. Like she, we got to go back to like the first chapters to connect all this together that she forces him into this religious lifestyle. She doesn't give him a proper education. She thinks being an urban missionary being forced to sing hymns on the street corner is good enough to implant in him a moral life and and a to make him a good Christian person. That's she believes she was successful in that. That's why she can't believe the worst in Clyde. And of course, two of her children made you know made horrible moral mistakes in their life. Her her daughter went off with a seducer and got pregnant and that became a shame on the family that she had to deal with. And Clyde ends up doing, making similar errors. So there's really a problem of of, a flaw in this religious upbringing in the way the mother did it. Right. And then at the end of the life, she shows up and full of pathos and love, but she's not been a part of her son's life. 
in any significant way. Now, partially that's Clyde's fault, but she does, she's able to come off, you know, as a bit of a victim here. And the media is a bit ambivalent about Mrs. Griffith. I think they, they, now partially what the defense wants to do is use Mrs. Griffith and her upbringing as, as a reason that Clyde fell, right? The defense is more eager to paint her as, a, you know, tr- a reason that Clyde was doomed and, and would make bad moral choices. I'm not sure that's how the public sees it. And she becomes kind of a pathetic figure towards the end. And she's paying for her own sins, it seems, and sins that, sins that come out of how she raised her children. Um, so anyways, as this section of the novel ends, the indictment comes down, the trial is is scheduled, the defense has a rough plan of attack, the prosecution case is fairly well laid out with very few bumps in the road. It seems everything is in place for a dramatic trial, but it's hard to not know that the, if, I mean, a reader knows how it's going to end up, I'm sure, especially readers at the time would have known because it's based on the real trial, and, and just it's called an American tragedy. So you know it's going to end up bad, but you we're we're ready at this point for the courtroom drama and i'm going to talk about that in the next episode but it's really great stuff i I just love what dreiser does here with the courtroom and the scenes and the back and forth between the prosecutor and defense and the objection your honor and the cross-examination and the 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 long day-long testimony by the key witness so what so great and and it's wonderful and it just it's almost like a law and order episode in in some ways I don't know if that's what court cases were really like, but I, I assume Dreiser spent time in them. But it's it's so interesting to to read. And it is, you know, it's not, you know, I, I suppose in real life courts or murder trials are really, really boring. Uh, I've never been on a jury, so I'm not really sure. But in fiction, they're always really exciting and dramatic. And maybe these sensational trials, you know, are exceptions to the rule. But in this case, we, we get an exciting uh, uh, criminal trial, uh, the kind that will live in people's memories for, for, for decades afterwards. So that's what we can look forward to in uh, my next episode, where which will be part eight of this series on an American tragedy. I'll talk about uh, the trial and the conviction of Clyde Griffiths and the defenses and, you know, and how I feel about those scenes. Um, now, in the meantime, if you have any of your own opinions about an American tragedy and this novel and, and what it provides and what it tells about America, and especially what is book three trying to get at? What is, what is, what are your feelings about these big celebrity trials or these, even if they're not celebrity, the trials that really make national headlines and become a center of national focus and attention? What is the role that those trials have played in American history? What, what do they tell us about eras? You know, are there trials like this that define an age and define the moral, political, social conflict of, of the time? Do, does that exist or am I just kind of manufacturing that? So anyways, leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, if you have anything else you want to th- say about this, this novel, please uh, feel free to share that as well. Um, but in any case, I'll see you next time where we'll, we'll talk about the trial of, of Clyde Griffiths. you it's a story that's